Hello and welcome to Are We Nearly There Yet? I'm Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. He basically just said, be in, in not so many words, just, just be a normal human being, you know, when you're managing people. And uh, he gave me, a, you know, he was, he did that to me. It was very helpful. And he, he allowed me to do that to others further on in my career. So hopefully that's, that's been helpful. Today I'm talking to Rob Whittleston, who is NNL's Vice President for Insight and works as part of the Science, Strategy and Innovation Directorate, where he is leading the delivery of strategic intelligence and insight to support sector growth in a shifting nuclear landscape. That's from his LinkedIn page, and I like it. Rob is based in Chadwick House and lives in South Manchester with his wife, Hannah. Welcome, Rob, and thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Good to see you. Good to see you too. So, Rob, you grew up in Sheffield and you went to Leeds University to study Earth System Science. What were you like at school and what made you choose that to read at university? I was not hugely academic at school. I was a little bit disconnected from, from my studies. Uh, it was interesting, actually. I, I started off pretty academic in the early years of the secondary school and then, and then found other things, uh, shall we say. And actually, when I when I finished uh, and did my A levels, just about scraped through them. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, so I took a I took a gap year. All right. What did you do in the gap year? Uh, I uh, I furthered myself by just exclusively working in a pub and having a good time. <laughs> so, so, so 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 I did that. But actually, it gave me the time to really reflect on what I wanted to do. And and I I, I think I'd felt at school that you were being funneled down certain tracks, and I, and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to be. And so I realized at that point that I just I enjoyed trying to understand about the environment around me. So how the sky uh, or the, you know, the weather impacted on the land and all that kind of stuff. And it, it just it was very, it felt, it felt very tangible to me. And I, and I toured around some universities and I found this degree, which is very, very unusual. And they no longer do it at Leeds, much to my dismay. And uh, but it's something that's bigger in the US. And it was. Um, it was a natural choice because it was how how the whole earth works as one big complex system and it was yes. fascinating yes it's like um what's his name the gaia exactly that exactly that the gaia theory yeah gaia theory that's that's interesting so you must have loved it so much because then you stayed on and and did a phd what what made you want to do research i think for the undergrad doing something that you enjoyed Allow, you know, really allowed me to be successful. It was the first time that I found it easy. The PhD was, I basically was able to continue a, a, an undergraduate dissertation that I did into take it through to PhD level. And I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to do that. I took a conscious choice that I really wanted to prove to myself that I could focus on one thing for long enough to produce something really meaningful out of it because the, 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 the undergrad was fantastic but very broad. I learned a lot about loads of different things, but I never really drilled down into one particular topic. And this was a natural progression, really looking at the detail of, of the subsurface and how all sorts of interesting processes in there would impact the environment. And it was tied to an actual problem as well, which I liked. It was a, 
an area of contaminated land. I could see the work that I was doing had real world applications and that allowed me to remain motivated. Yeah, it's big motivation that, isn't it? Seeing where your work can make a difference. It's probably also worth saying that both my brothers uh, have done PhDs and, and as the middle child, I was quite competitive. So I, I wasn't going to miss out. And I, and I actually uh, made sure I, I completed it more quickly than my older brother. So it gave me three months or so of calling him up and introducing myself as Dr. Whittleston, <laughs> which, was, uh, which was great. Good for you. Good for you. So how do you think university changed you as a person? It made a huge difference. I mean, I, I, as I said before, choosing something that you are enjoyed and then being successful at it really just made me realize, you know, you shouldn't sacrifice or you shouldn't uh, make any concession. Just do what it is that you enjoy and you'll be successful. And, uh, and I really, really, really enjoyed the undergraduate. And then I really, really enjoyed the, the, the postdoc. I made some fantastic, or the PhD, I should say. I made some fantastic friends. I learned a lot about managing upwards and supervisors, which I'm sure you've had a lot of in, in your time, Andrew. And most importantly, I proved to myself that I could do it. I was able to reach that level where I hadn't been as academic in the past. And I was able to focus and deliver something. I'm not naturally a complete finisher, but I needed to complete and finish this because it only had three years of funding. So it wasn't going anywhere after that. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, I think that that was the most oh, that's really interesting that's that's really good and then i was interested because you're like really at the sharp end and you've done your phd you've been doing research and then you sort of spent some years in as a project manager and then as a research manager working with the nda and radioactive waste management so what motivated you or what was your thought process from moving from doing research to managing research I enjoy doing the PhD, but I prefer having a broader perspective of, of things and, and seeing how they all knit together. And uh, that, that was the thing that really interested me, because I think naturally I find it difficult to focus on one thing for a very long period of time. Actually, the, the first job I had post-PhD was, was checking documents for the post office because there was, there was nothing out there. So it, that, that was quite challenging. But then I was kept on at the university to, to set up a kind of uh, an international research group around uh, mineral exploration, strangely, so that was good. But the the move through to R, uh, RWM or RWMD as was then was really on the. Uh, it was really lucky because it was the opportunity to bring an understanding of a discipline that was relevant to geological disposal, but also an opportunity to see across many other disciplines and how they all fitted together to uh, to, to to deliver a project. And that was really what I liked. The fact it was it was clearly focused on a challenge that they were trying to solve and do you think your technical background i mean were, were you managing technical projects and so your experience in the technical world and do, doing research and understanding that world did that make a difference to how you manage the projects or define the projects do you think yeah absolutely that that was I think they had a, uh, at that time, I'm not sure they do now, but they have a, uh, a requirement on the role spec that you actually have a PhD because they, they wanted people that could interpret lots of different complicated information and, and make recommendations on the back of it. It, re it really did help. I think it sometimes 
presented a bit of a challenge because you naturally got quite interested in the detail and you wanted to kind of explore it and you actually needed to pull back. Uh, and the other, I guess the other thing that there was a bit of a challenge is that I think the, the phrase that they use is intelligent client, which actually is not hugely useful, particularly internationally, because everyone assumes it means that who you're working with is, is not intelligent. So, it's, uh, so, so they don't like the use of it, particularly in places like Sweden and stuff. It's not a good starting point, that is it? No. Uh, so um, in terms of the sort of challenges you faced, you talked about being interested in the detail and having to pull back from that. What other sort of challenges did you face in that role? And how did you sort of adapt how you approached them to, to overcome them? I think anyone that's joined the nuclear industry, and I had no knowledge of the nuclear industry before I entered it, will know it is the language. And I guess it's the same for most industries. It's like a completely different language. And it was a very steep learning curve. I was lucky enough that the technical aspect of my PhD was indirectly relevant. So I kind of had a bit of a head start there. But there was so much about the industry that I just did not know. And I think every, everyone who's enters, not only is the language complicated, but unless you're in the industry, one of the biggest challenges we have, you don't know much about it. You don't know much about the sector at all. It's not well taught. No one really knows how important it is. Uh, so to try and get up that learning curve, I found I found particularly difficult. It is complicated, isn't it? I mean, it's complicated for me and I've lived in it for the last 35 years or so through multiple changes and sell-offs and buyouts and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's, it is very complicated. But you clearly didn't have enough uh, experience in the nuclear industry. So you moved to Hitachi for more experience in the nuclear industry in this European research centre they'd set up based in London. Tell me a little bit about that and then your motivation to move to your next role, which was completely different in the Department of Transport within, within government. Oh, yeah, that was, a, that was quite the pivot. Although I said the learning curve at RWM was, was pretty steep and, and the lack of understanding beforehand wasn't, wasn't hugely helpful, you know, I think a lot of people will probably share this, but when you start picking beneath the surface of what the sector is all about and really starting to understand it and talking to people that, that have known it and lived it and breathed it, you realise its potential and it gets, it gets under your skin. So I was very passionate and still remain very supportive of what other women are trying to do, but it was not moving anywhere very quickly. And, you know, they, they, they had a challenge with public acceptance and, and things, and uh, it kind of it set things back a bit. And I wanted to continue momentum to understand a little bit more about a different part of the sector. And, um, uh, and the opportunity at Hitachi, which was, again, a kind of senior research management type role, so a natural kind of step from where I was before, also allowed me to take play the role as the kind of European interface for their ambitions from an R&D point of view to support the new build program at, at Wilver and to support their decommissioning program back in Fukushima and it was a really interesting role particularly from a cultural point of view because the office was 80 or 90 percent resourced by secondes from Japan so that was fascinating. It might have been the first time I met you when you were in there or not I'm not sure I'm not sure. Uh, no the first time you met me Andrew was um on the, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed you obviously don't remember this. It was obviously a bigger deal for me than it was for you. But I was, I was at, uh, I was at RWM. I'd entered the the speaking competition for the YGN, the Nuclear Institute. Been lucky enough to, to win that at the, in the end, and went to the NIA conference, the one in September, presented on the geological disposal program, and then you interviewed me as part of a Q and A and with some other panelists there. That's and, right. Yes, you do. But you're you're lying. I do no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't remember. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so so it actually was great in that sense. Um, it was a real, really um, an interesting opportunity to try and balance 
what kind of corporate Hitachi back in Japan uh, were trying to achieve while being very mindful of the domestic challenges they faced. You know, post Fukushima, they were in a very bad, a very bad position, lots of impacts on individuals. So to try and transfer capabilities and grow that in the UK, very difficult to get to sell. Um, so that that was uh, was fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's right. So so why did you then move into government? Was again was it it was just very difficult in the in the climate at Hitachi, and you you were ready for the next challenge? Oh, I think I think the climate at Hitachi was it wasn't necessarily difficult. It was very reliant on um, on negotiations going on with government. So there was so much we could do. So uh, there was that we, we achieved quite a lot, actually. And, and a lot of that I'm pleased to see is continuing, despite the news that's happened that's uh, paused the programme in Anglesey. But from my role in, in RWM and my role at Hitachi, there was a huge amount of interface with government, either working with them at RWM on joint programmes or at Hitachi talking to them about our ambitions for the new build programme. And I really, I really wanted to understand what actually made them tick. Because I genuinely, it was, it's, if you're in the industry or another part of, uh, of the sector and you're working in close to government, it's quite difficult sometimes to understand you know, what really matters to them? How can we actually get anything landed or actually get a decision on something? So that's right. That's why I wanted to go in and, and work. And also, I thought it would be nice to get a, an appreciation of a different industry beyond nuclear. So that's why I moved into rail, of all things. Right. So were you involved in some of the early discussions around Crossrail or HS2 or anything like that? No, so HS2 was already well underway. Actually, just thinking back, there is something in my past. I think my first ever school project was on Sheffield train station. So obviously I'm harbouring a love for, love for trains somewhere. But no, I didn't do anything on Crossrail HS2. It was, the, um, it was the Rail Market Strategy Directorate. And as part of the regulatory periodic review, we were responsible for setting the new regime, which would then, you know, the Office of Road and Rail would then ratify and it would go to the Secretary of State and all that kind of stuff. So and my, my particular policy brief, I was the head of the charging and incentive policy. How you can incentivize both train operators and infrastructure managers and anyone else in the system to act in the interests of us as passengers uh, without at the same time, for example, pricing out rail freight and things like that. It was fascinating. Again, quite technical, but at the same time, you know, involved a lot of discussions with ministers and you know, you know, other partners. So presumably that sort of helped you a little bit in your role at NNL, because, of course, we're trying to influence government and government spending on future of nuclear and all that sort of stuff. From your time within government, if there was one sort of lesson that you'd want to share with people at NNL who are trying to interface with people in I know it's a very different department and and so on what what would that advice be uh, interesting uh, so the advice would be there is no grand plan so don't wait for the grand plan what i really valued and i know this from talking to people that i know in other departments this is a common theme what i really valued is when the train operators uh, all came together so you had, you know, owning groups or, or, or rolling stock managers, whoever they are, would come together and say, this is what we need. And it made it very easy for me to go, OK, that's interesting. Uh, what are the implications on X, Y, Z? I'll take that back. I'll talk to my colleagues. Yeah, it sounds like the right thing to do. Away we go. And I think in the nuclear industry and particularly at NNL, because there are, and there are very few, if any, organizations that are as well placed as we are to influence 
at NNL, we have a great opportunity to bring the industry together to have a much more coordinated voice on key issues and communicate it in a way which is compelling. As a national lab, we're full of scientists. We have a fantastic opportunity. We're very credible. People trust scientists and engineers. Let's get at them. Let's, let's, let's put things out there that people can get behind and get, and, uh, get excited about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. you're preaching to the converted here. And I think it's, it's absolutely critical that we, that we do that and take that responsibility as an organisation, actually. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I'd say, I mean, the, the, the benefit of being in, the, in government is I was able to join this network, which um, I'm able to develop something on the back of, but basically it allows us to, to engage with a much broader group of people in Whitehall. And um, the, other, the other lesson is everybody, all the officials are effectively, you know, they're just like you and I, and the vast majority of them don't know anything at all about the nuclear industry. They rely on experts to tell them what it is that they should be doing and that they get to balance that on what is the, the priorities of your minister and what is, on average, the best thing to do for society. And, uh, you know, th- there is a real opportunity not just to influence on particular agendas, but to just generally help upskill, because nuclear is always is going to be high on the pu- public agenda for a long time. Of course, that's right. So when, when you look back on your, your sort of journey so far, can you point to an event or a particular move or a thing that happened that has really had a big impact on your career so far i think i mean there's a couple i I would say joining rwm i think that gave me uh, a real crash course one in the nuclear industry but also in transferring from from a more technical role into into one that's much more managerial that was fascinating learned a huge amount from that a lesson i would always show people is there is no such thing as a stupid question I mean, just just ask questions. People will forgive you. Um, you know, you're not going to be judged for it. Uh, that was really helpful in, in getting me up to speed quickly with things in, in RWM. And then, not just because you're the person I talked to about this, Andrew, at all, but the other the other the other thing is the move into NNL um, because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't uh, in in the government for long. I wasn't really looking to to move, but I, you know, I think I said before, the industry gets under your skin. And I truly believe in the role it has to play long term for the benefits of society and the value that, that it can contribute. And uh, I thought NNL was an organisation that was really well placed to do that. And I've been very lucky to be able to play a role in, in helping us find out what it is that we're going to try and do. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's one of those organisations which I truly believe in as well, because, you know, whilst we operate commercially and therefore as efficiently as we can and and all the rest of it and understand customers and and so on we also don't just think about ourselves we think about the national picture too and that's part of our responsibility really and i i really find that compelling and important and keeps me really interested what about people what what people have influenced you in your career so uh my first manager i think he influenced me uh he Mm -hmm. was um he took a really good approach to, to, to management, um, which I can't share on here because the language isn't, isn't appropriate. He basically just said, be, in, in not so many words, just, just be a normal human being, you know, when you're managing people. And uh, he gave me, a, you know, he, was, he did that to me. It was very helpful. And he, he allowed me to do that to others further on in my career. So hopefully that's, that's been helpful. But he also gave me a lot of support while at the same time freedom to kind of explore 
you know, different avenues at RWM, developed different projects, very different capability, did a lot around public engagement and the kind of socioeconomic challenges and things. And that, that I really find fascinating because I think it comes down to that as the challenge mainly. I would say he was uh, pretty instrumental. The only other people I would say would probably be both my brothers, actually. And, and I, I was thinking about this, and obviously I'm, I'm glad they're never going to hear this because I would never want them to hear it. But there was one particular moment where my older brother was giving a lecture at uh, the Royal Institution on influenza mutations, and it was during swine flu. So he, he was doing a postdoc at the time. And I just couldn't believe how competent, incredible, professional he came across in front of that audience and how he handled the questions that came back and he pitched it all perfectly. And I just thought, well, that is brilliant. I would love to be able to emulate even 50% of that in, in the future. Because the, 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 the influence you can have if you're able to communicate important topics in that way is, is outstanding. Yes. And uh, so, so that really kind of gave me a bit of a kick up the backside, I should say. <laughs> that's, that's really interesting because it is often the people you see in roles that, and having known him as well, growing up and all the rest of it, to see him develop into that is it, it yeah, does sickening. Look, absolutely. <laughs> sickening yeah. I've got a younger brother so um, yes I've looked at it from the other perspective oh, I have that as well yeah <laughs> so do you think you'd do anything differently do you think you'd make any different decisions if you could you know live the last 15 20 years again I might take a bit more time over things uh, I, I think I've been um, I think I've been lucky to carry momentum through roles uh, and you know and that, that's good because you you know you, you get to experience lots of different things and, and all that kind of stuff but you also uh, it's also you put quite a lot of pressure on yourself and, it, and it, you can you can burn out and that has happened so I would you know I think I might I might do things a little bit differently there um, it's probably the main serious lesson the the other thing is that before I before I took the job at RWM uh, I had another job offer on the table and that was to do gold prospecting in the Yukon for, for, for a summer so because basically on the back of the phd the the the, the deal was that you know you, you have set up this research institute you can go out to um you can go out to this mineral exploration conference in vancouver and, and network and that was great and it got a couple of offers on the back of that um also got to play in the the hockey tournament the ice hockey tournament which was part of the conference which is the best networking you could ever do i uh, passed up the offer of three months in the middle of nowhere um for gold for uh, a, a career at RWM or, or at least three years. So I don't know. I, I sometimes look back on that and think if I could have done both, I probably would have done both. But I thought the opportunity at RWM uh, was too too good to miss at the time. In, in anybody's journey, you have these twists and turns and, and opportunities that come and they, and they keep coming, you know, and you can't, do, you can't do everything. There's things I look back on and sometimes I think, oh, that would have been nice if it had come off, but it didn't. So it's fine. Keep looking forward, you know. Lastly, so looking back on the young Rob who was working in a pub, thinking about what his future was going to bring and what he was going to do, sensibly taking some time out, actually, I think that paid off. Um, what, what one piece of advice would you give him? It's OK not to know where you're going. And uh, which is, I keep telling myself now because I, I still don't know necessarily. I know what interests me and I'm just going to keep doing that and uh, explore ways to improve my performance in doing those things that, I in, that interest me. But I, I, I say that, I tell that lesson to people that I talk to back at, at schools now. 
I felt a great deal of pressure leaving school that I feel like I should have known where I was going. You know, I, I kind of got to the point where I resented it. Uh, but actually, take some time, identify, you know, what it is you enjoy and go with that. And, uh, you know, don't fret or don't be concerned about every twist and turn that you say. You're not entirely sure what the right thing is to do, because I have a I have quite a bad habit of always wanting to try and make the right decision every time. And, some, and it can really bury you. Yes, it can. Um, it can paralyze you, actually, can't it? Absolutely, yeah. So I, I, I would very much encourage young Rob, young younger Rob, I should say. He's still young. Um, I, should, I should have picked you up on that, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, young, younger Rob. That uh, uh, that yeah, it's okay not to know where you're going. Very good. Very good. Look, Rob, that's been fantastic. Thanks for your time and um, thanks for talking to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review thank you